Are you a sneakerhead? Yeah, boy! A baller? Ballin'. Want to know about the hottest brands you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, because we got all the details right here. Nice take by James. Oh, he stops! LeBron James puts it down in the face of James Johnson. Kevin Durant way outside. Delivers! Kevin Durant from downtown. It's a six-point game. And it goes off to Kobe. Good to ride Kobe underneath. Puts his nose on the line again. Makes the basket. He's fouled. Oh, what a play. And Kobe, after he was fouled, after the ball nestled in the net, he waved to a cameraman down in front. Says, take my picture, baby. Sixers running the break. Iverson accelerating to the jam. It's kicks and bricks where we got game on the streets, and on the court. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. And here's your host, Jamel Cutler. What up, what up? Welcome to Kicks. Today we have a legend that's behind the lens in the world of hip hop and punk. Her imprint can be found throughout her famous images. The legend herself, Jeanette Beckman. How you doing? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me uh, on this podcast. That's super exciting. No, man, no doubt. Like, you're a legend, so, like, I just want to chop it up with you and just hear your opinions and and some of your war stories about all the um, people that you've been around these last 40 years. Okay, we can do that. We can do that. <laughs> All right. So um, what have you been up to, you know, since the pandemic happened? Has it stifled, you know, some of your um, photography shoots? Any? Uh, well, interestingly enough, during lockdown 2020, I pretty much I was on lockdown in New York City, but I happened to live sort of in between Washington Square, um, Tompkins Square and City Hall and Union Square. So I ended up documenting all the Black Lives Matter protests. Well, not all of them, but the ones that were, you know, passing by my street here. And I ended up becoming, you know, really involved in that movement. And it was an amazing experience. And I feel really blessed because you know, obviously I'm not old enough to have been part of the civil rights movement in the 60s, but I feel like this is our civil rights movement and it definitely changed the world. And I was very excited to be a part of it. You know, now now that you mentioned, mentioned the 60s, you know, 2020 kind of felt like 1968 to me. You know, I wasn't born back then, but but through the pictures and the stuff that I read and hearing all the stories, you know, you know to me, it it kind of felt the same. Yeah, I think so too. And, um, you know, it's really an important moment in history and the fact that, you know, we got a new president, thank goodness, and all of that. So much happened in that year, even though we were on lockdown. I mean, I was out with my camera pretty much every day, documenting and riding bikes on, you know, bike protests up to Harlem. And, all of that stuff. And it was a really exciting and inspiring time for me. So yeah, that's kind of what I did during 2020. This and this year I've been working on my book and trying to do a book launch during a pandemic is not the easiest thing, but 
you know, we pulled it off. I have an exhibition at a photo museum called Photographiska, which is on Park Avenue and 22nd Street in New York City. So we did a big book signing there and um, that was super exciting. Rough Trade made it book of the year, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. We just did a book signing there too. You know, I've been sort of trying to promote the book and, you know, I'm working on a couple of projects that I don't know if I'm really allowed to say, but basically I'm getting to photograph some women musicians that are icons of mine for a TV series. So photograph Nona Hendrix and uh, Ricky Lee Jones and Natalie Merchant. This is a bunch of uh, Macy Gray, bunch of people that I've admired for years and I'm getting to do portraits of them for this TV show. So it's super exciting. What got you interested in photography early on growing up in England? Uh, well, growing up in London, I, for some reason, I always knew I wanted to be an artist of some sort. And I was always drawing, you know, like watching TV, I always was drawing. It was like drawing pictures of flowers, drawing, you know, the cat, whatever. Take it, you know, just always had a pencil and a sketchbook. And so I decided I want to go to art school. And the first year I spent, I wanted to be like this artist who was really popular at the time. He's very famous, David Hockney. And I thought, uh-huh. Maybe I could, you know, I just wanted to be a portrait artist and make portraits because I'd spent a lot of time as a kid in museums looking at portraits of, you know, kings and people working in the fields and stuff from, you know, like the 16th century, the 17th century. And I was like, I want to draw people of my century. But after the first year in art school, I kind of... I didn't think my drawing was good enough and I segued into photography and I changed colleges. I took a three-year photo course and I came out and that was it. I just knew that that was going to be you know, my path in life. Who are some of the early acts that you took pictures of? Well, the first music, proper music assignment I had was in 1977. I had actually walked in paper called sounds and I had a portfolio of photos there were no musicians there I had never photographed a musician but I showed my work to this woman Vivian Goldman who is now actually the professor of punk at NYU and she was like oh I like your pictures why don't you go and photograph Susie and the Banshees tonight so I was like okay and I came out and I was like, oh, I've never photographed a band before. I don't, you know, let alone done a live concert. And back in the day, you know, we were working with film. So it was a little more complicated. But, you know, I went to the concert. I photographed the concert. I came back the next day with the pictures. And she was like, these are good. Um, she gave me another assignment. And that kind of was how it all started. And I ended up going to another weekly music paper called Melody Maker. And I worked for them from like 1977 to 82. And photographed pretty much all the bands, well, a lot of the bands that 
were coming up during you know the so-called punk era, which would be bands like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, Boy George, Adam and the Ants. I did um, album cover for The Police, the first Police album cover, uh, Debbie Harry, um, you know, all sorts of bands. And, you know, at the same time, I started working for a, week, a monthly music magazine called The Face, which had just started up. It was a startup. And The Face was all about not just the music, but also the fans and, you know, the culture that was going around on months in the UK. So, you know, I could suggest ideas to them. And I went and photographed, you know, an underground boxing ring. I photographed, you know, the fans at some music concert in Scotland, uh, you know, all sorts of things that were really interesting to me. You were on the front lines early on in the punk scene. You know, how did the older generation of that time view punk? When, you know, in the UK, we all kind of grew up with, uh, the British class system, the monarchy and the upper class were ruling, you know, and in the 1970s, you know, I have to paint the picture that the economy in the UK was terrible. It was, you know, unemployment and people were really desperate. And, you know, the conservative government was in power and they were just shutting down everything, you know, the free swimming pools and taking milk away from the kids in school. And, Basically, people in the UK hated the government and then punk came along and it kind of shattered all of those things that had been in place for hundreds of years. It was a kind of, you know, fuck you to the queen and country, if I can say that word. And, you know, I think, you know, the older establishment were really shocked. Uh, the first time, you know, for the first time, the British youth were really kind of rebelling. And, um, you know, when the Sex Pistols, when Johnny Rotten, you know, wrote God Save the Queen in 1977, and there was a lyric that said, there's no future in England dreaming. He really, it really was true. That's exactly what was happening. So it really, I think it turned everything upside down and, you know, the British people, the sort of older generation was shocked by punk and, you know, the styles and suddenly you're seeing people with crazy mohawks, you know, wearing a garbage bag and Doc Martens walking down the street. It was kind of terrifying for them, but, you know, I loved it because it was a spirit of change and rebellion. Mm -hmm. Like, who are some of your favorite um, punk guys that you worked with over the years? Well, I have to say my favorite punk band of all time has got to be The Clash. And I first photographed them, I think in a place called The Music Machine. And, you know, it was a concert and it was so crazy. There was The Clash playing. I, you know, in those days you could go to a concert and they, they would let you photograph everything. You were in the pit and you had, could photograph the whole concert. And, you know, on stage comes Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and, and Jimmy Percy. And it was just like crazy music. And I always loved The Clash. And a couple of years later, I got assigned to go photograph them in Milan. They were playing in this old bicycle stadium. 
and people were crazy for the clash by then and it was i got to make portraits of them in the dressing room which was kind of like a semi cave underneath the bicycle stadium it was like really amazing really amazing feeling and the specials i always loved two tone you know bands like madness and the specials i went on um, a tour with the specials it was called the seaside tour and we were just going around staying in little airbnbs bed and breakfast as we call them in like little seaside towns and then they would play at night i got to be on that tour with them for a few days that was really exciting you know and and the specials were a two tone band and you know they'd made that famous song ghost town which you may be familiar with if you don't know it you should listen to it because it really accurately describes you know how england was back in the day uh what other bands the jam i was a big jam fan i love paul weller and uh you know there are a lot of bands i loved to be honest mm-hmm. you know do you have any cool stories again involving the clash well you know basically i don't know about cool but you know when i went to photograph them in milan i went with the writer paolo hewitt who was um he was a foster kid he's written about it and his mom was italian and he'd never been to italy before he was a little bit younger than me so we we went on this big adventure to italy which was really exciting and just going to milan and going to hang out with the clash in you know in the dressing room before the concert that so this they were playing as i mentioned in this bicycle stadium and it was a huge old bicycle stadium and the dressing room was kind of like a cave underneath there's nothing fancy there was just a table with a mirror and you know the band were down there getting dressed and getting stoned as well <laughs> they were smoking weed and drinking and we arrived and Paolo started interviewing them and I was trying to I knew I had to get photographs of everybody like an individual photo of each member of the band and then a group photo but they were really kind of stoned by then <laughs> it was a little it was a little tricky and um you know in the end I asked Joe Strummer if I could take a picture of him and he sat down in this chair and he made this fist it's kind of a famous picture a muscle and a fist and he's wearing a clash t-shirt and it's just like a really cool picture and it was so intense he was looking at me you know through his shades and that was really intense and then i i went and photographed each one i got a group picture and then the band were going on stage and by that time you know we all smoked a little bit of weed and <laughs> This is kind of crazy. I was on the side of the stage with my camera and the band goes on and everybody's cheering and the place is packed and they're all holding up these little big cigarette lighter things and it's like all hell breaking loose and Joe starts singing and I'm on the side of the stage and I've got my let you know my camera pressed against my face and I was so kind of concentrated on what they were doing that I started to walk apparently towards him across the middle of the stage 
<laughs> then the roadies notice me and they're like, get that woman off the stage. So I came and dragged me back. But I was just transfixed by this whole scene and I was just trying to get a close-up shot, really. But uh, I think I was just, <laughs> I was in a dream world, so let's put it that way. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but there you go. It's the intensity of the clash for me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, um, they were like considered one of the first woke punk bands. Like, do you think that they were kind of ahead of their time? Were they woke? Is yeah. That oh, for right. sure. I mean, you got to remember in England at that time, you know, we had a lot of uh, kind of fascist kids. They were, you know, the skinheads were very right wing. They did not like people of color. And in the neighborhood I was living in, people would often get beaten up by the skinhead characters that would hang around by the train station. And, you know, we had this whole movement called Rock Against Racism. I don't know if you heard about it. And a lot of bands played free concerts to promote Rock Against Racism because it, it was pretty bad, you know, there were kids carrying, you know, kind of Nazi flags. Yeah, I mean, I think the Clash were really woke and obviously two-tone bands like the Specials were as well because they were mixed black and white kids making music. And, you know, it was, a, it was an important time for that. Big facts, man. So like the Clash and the Specials, you know, they had like a political theme to their music. Like, did you see any parallels between them and NWA here in in America? Mm, well, that's an interesting question. I know. I mean, it's not even just the Clash of the Specials. A lot of the bands, you know, had like political lyrics, especially the Jam. If you listen to a lot of the mm-hmm. Jam songs, I mean, it's just about growing up poor and not, and the Sex Pistols too, but. Parallels to NWA, well, I guess when NWA recorded Fuck the Police, that was a moment that kind of shocked, I guess, even the hip hop community. That was like a serious moment. And I guess you could say it's parallel. I mean, I would say more parallel to Public Enemy, if you want to know. You know, so how did you like end up here in the city? Um. Well, what happened was in 1982, in the fall of 1982, um, there was the first ever hip hop uh, concert came to London. And I was working for this paper, Melody Maker, and I put up my hands and I was like, I want to go shoot it when we were in the meeting. And they were like, okay. So I went down to this little, you know, Airbnb bed and breakfast where everybody was staying and wanted to get pictures of the people. I didn't, we didn't know anything about hip hop. We really had never, you know, it was the first ever hip hop concert. So, you know, we'd heard about it, but we didn't really know what it was. So that afternoon I'm there with my camera and there are all these people hanging out in the lobby of this little uh, rooming house. And I just started taking pictures of people and they looked so different from the kind of gloomy punks that I was used to, you know, they're like, you know, they were wearing, you know, sheepskin jackets, gazelles, pumas, you know, they had this incredible energy, gold chains and everything. So 
that afternoon, I just ran around and took pictures of everybody. And I didn't know who they were, but they all posed for me. And that afternoon, I got photographs of really some of the godfathers of what was going to become the hip hop culture, which would be um, you know, Africa Bambata, Grand Mixer DST, Fab Five Freddy, Futura, Dondi, Ramelzy, the Double Dutch Girls, uh, the, you know, the Rocksteady crew. But I just thought they were so fascinating and interesting. So I went to the concert that night, which was in a place called The Venue outside Victoria Station. And I just couldn't believe it. Like all these things were going on on stage at the same time. Dondi and Futura were working on a, back, a backdrop. Africa Bambada was DJing. Fat Five Freddy was rapping. You know, there were break dances on stage all at the same time. It was kind of, I would say, like a renaissance moment for me. And I just, I just loved it. I took photographs. They, it all ran in the weekly music paper. Unfortunately, the journalist who was covering it didn't agree with me. And he wrote something, I think the headline was something like, this scratching thing is just a fad like skateboarding, which I respect. <laughs> he definitely got that wrong. Um, anyway, so a couple of months later, I was coming to visit a friend in New York City for Christmas. And, you know, she lived in Tribeca, what is now Tribeca, in a loft building, which you know, with a bunch of other artists. And I got off the train, well, I got onto the train and the train was covered in graffiti. You know, there were kids like on the street, walking around with boom boxes, and there were people break dancing. There was just music everywhere and it seemed so alive. And I just kind of ended up staying. That's kind of how it happened. You know, you mentioned, you know, the music was booming and everything, um, when you came to NY back in the 80s, like, did you ever um, shoot at CBGB's? You know, I really didn't. That's the, <laughs> I never really, uh, I went to CBGB's a few times and when I first moved here, I was living down the road from the mud club. So I went there a little bit, you know, we'd go out to clubs, but I actually was not, I'd sort of, left punk behind and, you know, for hip hop, basically. And I don't know, it's something new, being in New York and the new culture that was coming along was so exciting to me. I kind of was much more concentrated on that. And I ended up moving to the East Village and there were all these little galleries that had graffiti artists work and you know, it was just happening. You know, walls were covered in graffiti. I had backdrops for all my photos. And the British music magazines that I'd been working for started giving me assignments because, you know, they were following everything that was going on here. And like, oh yeah, we had this, this group, um, Salt and Pepper. Can you photograph them? And they'd give you a phone number, you'd call up. And I ended up meeting Salt and Pepper before they even had a record label, taking their pictures on a hot day on, you know, on Avenue C in Alphabet City, you know, hanging around on the street, just chatting and having fun, taking pictures. And they're like, oh, 
we have a record coming out. Would you be our photographer? And I was like, sure. And that's how I got introduced to Salt and Pepper and ended up taking that famous shot of them in the April jackets. And, you know, then I met Herbie who was managing Dana Dane and all these other acts. And I photographed them for all these little labels. I was pretty embedded in the hip hop culture, you could say. Did you see any similarities between like the punk scene over in England and in the burgeoning rap scene here in New York? It was totally similar to me because I think, you know, the two movements basically kind of came out of the same thing, which would be, you know, cities with, you know, crumbling infrastructures, you know, and high unemployment. And in New York, you know, when I came here, drugs and crime and, you know, just like where I come from in London, you know, it's like these young people just found their voices and were making something out of nothing and they created hip hop here. And it really, you know, both of them came from the streets and, you know, from having a tough everyday life. As when I first got here, I think, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five song, The Message kept running around in my head because I was living in what is now Tribeca, but it really was dark and kind of dangerous. It was deserted warehouses and, you know, those words, broken glass everywhere, people kissing on the stage like you just don't care. And, you know, rats in the front room broke. I mean, it was junkies in the alley with a baseball bat. It was, it was a tough time here. And just like London, the punk movement, people had decided they wanted to express themselves, you know, through art and music. And I, yeah, I think there's so many similarities, you know, it's just, you know, two movements that came from the street, really. Yeah, pretty much. And like back then, like New York, it looked so differently, like aesthetically, like the signs, the graffiti. Do you think like that, aesthetic look added a certain, you know, look to your photographs that can't be really duplicated anymore? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, and also, you know, me not being from here, I didn't know that it might be dangerous to take a train with my camera to the Bronx to go on photograph, <laughs> <laughs> like BDP. I didn't, I had no sense of danger. So I was just kind of walking fearlessly on streets that maybe certain people didn't walk on, but you know, I was living on Avenue B and 8th Street where you sometimes couldn't even get a cab to take you because you know, so many drugs and people were getting mugged down there. Nothing ever happened to me, but yeah, it was gritty and the graffiti, I mean, it was amazing. I could just walk out of my little studio with, you know, Eric B and Rakim and go, oh, here, I'd like to stand against this wall. I had backdrops for all of my, for all of my photos that were made by these graffiti artists that I didn't actually meet until uh, I did this mashup project in 2014. But it, it was great. And it, yeah, it had a certain sense of authenticity, I think, that it's hard, it's harder to find. You can find it, but it's harder these days. Did you have a favorite place to shoot back then? You know, bearing in mind, I was living in, uh, I was living in Alphabet City, so, and my studio was on um, Lafayette and Great Jones. So it was already just 
doing that walk across 8th Street to get from one place to another. There were just so many spots. And I'm the same way now, to be honest. Like if someone comes to my studio to get a portrait done, I usually say, let's take a walk in the neighborhood and see, you know, see what we can find. We usually end up finding something. <laughs> For instance, I mean, that is sort of the way I work always. Like, uh, I think, I'm trying to think, maybe. 2018 or 2019, this basketball player you probably know called Damien Lillard. You know who I'm talking yeah. about. Right? Mm -hmm. I was photographing him for Interview Magazine and he came around my studio. I'm on Bond Street. And, you know, I, I felt like it's basketball. We should be on the street. So I was like, guys, let's just take a little walk. We had a basketball. Let's take a little walk um, over to. Houston, where I know there's a basketball court, right? And it's, it's, you know, it's a sketchy basketball court. It's nothing fancy, like Houston and second. So we all walk over there and people are shouting at him on the street. Oh, you missed that point. Everybody's got something to say to him. I didn't really know who he was, to be honest. But, you know, we get to the court and he's got a ball. He starts shooting hoops and then all the homeless people, there's a lot of homeless people in the neighborhood, come around and they are like, hey, I want to play with you. And they start shooting hoops with him. And then the cops come because they've heard there's something going on and they're shooting hoops. And, you know, I ended up getting like a real, you know, kind of authentic portrait of him, you know, just against a brick wall. And you just find stuff when you're outside. And that's, you know, I try and keep that same authenticness, you know, even now but you can usually take a little walk and find something that's cool. You know, and, and Dane playing with the homeless guys, it kind of like make them a man of the people, like the people's champion a little bit, if you think about it. Yeah, totally. Are you kidding me? I know. And he was so nice with them. It was, it was such a cool scene. It was just something I wish I'd been you know, recording it on video because yeah, it was just a moment. And, and then after that, he because he didn't know who I was, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know who he was, and we just kind of made a little bond at that moment. And then when I had to come and get like a close portrait of him standing against the wall, you know, we had that trust had built up, but it was great. Yeah, it was a great moment. So like you shot in New York like during the crack era, like can you talk about like what that era meant to New York as far as you know inspiring the arts whether it's photography or music? You know, as I say, the economy was really, really bad when I got here, but I was sort of used to that because I'd been living in this semi-squat in London. So, you know, it didn't seem so different to me. And when you, you know, when you think about it, uh, kids, kids were making, you know, making art in their own way. And when you think about, you know, a young graffiti artist having to, you know, climb out of his parents' bedroom window in the middle of the night, you know, with paint, cans of paint that he'd stolen during the day and go to a dangerous train yard where there are police and dogs and other artists that want to kill you and, and make a piece of art in the pitch dark. I mean, that requires a certain dedication and passion. To me, that's really important. The same thing, you know, with break dancers, it's kind of, 
you've got a piece of cardboard and you're just trying to do the best you can. You're doing this amazing thing. People were, I think people were incredibly inventive and it was an incredibly creative time. And it was a small community when you think about it. I mean, it was, it was New York's. I mean, by that, I mean, Brooklyn, whatever, all the bars, but it was a very creative time. And, you know, it was before social media and obviously before the internet. So if you knew, you knew. And, so. Yeah, and as far as, you know, drugs, there were a lot of drug addicts. I was living on, my apartment was on Tompkins Square and Tompkins Square was a park, the neighborhood park full of crackheads really. There was a crack house around the corner from me. And, you know, you had to be aware when you walked on the street. That's all I have to say. And frankly, right now during a pandemic, it's all happening all over again. And it's actually kind of frightening to see. I mean, and on like also like you were um, one of LL's first photographers. Um, can you talk about like what was it like work um, working with him in his early days of um, rapping? Well, I think it must have been 1985. I took my portfolio, or maybe 1984. I took my portfolio to um, Def Jam to see Leo Cohen, who I didn't know, but you know, I wanted to show him my work. You know, Def Jam was a very small label at that point, just starting up. You know, just like Sleeping Bag and Next Plateau, there were all these tiny little hip hop labels. And I, I wanted to work for them and do portraits of artists. So this is a slight segue, but I walked into Leo Cohen's office and, you know, Leo is, I, he's the head of Google right now and he's a wonderful man. But <laughs> I walked in his office and he was there. And he, he had his feet up on the desk. He was on the phone to somebody going, yeah, you know, $100,000, but I was shouting these big numbers down the phone and he was just like gesturing to me to just kind of sit down over in the corner and wait. And, you know, he had a cigar. It was, he was like, I don't know, he was, he was definitely the man. And eventually gets off the phone and, and he says, come on over and I show him my work. And he was just like, okay, okay. And then, I don't know, like a month later, he sends, uh, his PR, who is Bill Adler, over to my studio with the young LL Cool J to get his first press picture taken. And LL maybe was 17 years old. I'm not really sure, but he was very young. But there was something about him. I mean, he had this, he had a presence already and, you know, he had this, like I say, this was his first press photo. So he was not used to doing photo shoots and he just walked in and I had my studio set up already. And I was like, can you stand on this little spot over here? I had all the lights and he just stood on the spot and he looks at me and puts the boom box on his shoulder. And I took the picture and frankly, he just had this, he already had a sort of presence that I think, you know, we knew, you could tell that he was going to become a big star, even then. How does it feel to see that photograph that you took of LL 
in his radio at his at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony, like 30 years later. My friend Jason King was there and he sent me a picture of it. It blew my mind. That's all I have to okay. say. It absolutely blew my mind. I mean, if I did some little part, if I had some small part of making him, you know, the man he is now, I am, you know, truly honored. That's all I have to say. It, you know, it's the same with all these artists because most of the artists that I captured back in the day were at the beginnings of their careers. You know, they weren't famous. Slick Rick wasn't famous when I took that picture of him. You know, he was famous in his, you know, small, the small little hip hop thing that we had going on in New York, but that was it. And, you know, if I helped a little bit to make them in, you know, 40 years later, into the people that they are. That's that's amazing. Um, you know, really happy to have been a small part of it. Building an image, I think, is important. I think you cutting yourself short there. It's not a small part. It's a big part because that like photograph, it kind of like captures like what his whole career was about. Like if you look at it from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, you're right. But the thing is. You know, it's a collaboration. My portraits are always a collaboration between me and the subject. And for me, the most important thing is gaining the trust of somebody when they come in and, know, you know, for them to trust me to take the best picture of them. And I'm trying to capture them as they are at that moment. And, you know, you have to try and build a relationship with somebody within, you know, five minutes of meeting them. And, it's not an easy thing to do, and, you, and you're right. It is, I mean, it is important. And I'm actually working with LL right now, um, where his uh, merchandising company is going to do some merch on, with the photos that I've taken of him back in the day. And that's very exciting to me. And, you know, I'm really, really honored that he's still using those pictures. I mean, it is, I mean, it is, it's important. Um, you know, even a band like The Police, in my book, I asked Sting for a quote for my book, and he wrote this whole little story about how they, you know, had not been photographed before, what it was like, you know, in that dark tunnel. And it's, it's an experience that we go through together. You also played a big role in documenting, you know, women's role in rap too, you know, the MC Lights, the real um, Roxanne, Roxanne Chate and earlier you said Salt and Pepper. You know, as a woman, did you feel a special bond with them? Because like all of you were breaking down barriers in your respective fields, if you um, think about it. Yeah, you know, I didn't really think about it so much, but I knew at the time, now in retrospect, I really, I see it, you know, for how it was because hip hop really was a male dominated genre. And then, you know, Salt and Pepper come out and they, you know, they do songs like Let's Talk About Sex. And it's suddenly like the women are speaking up. I mean, it really was about girl power. I mean, before the Spice Girls or any of those, you know, before Beyonce, there was Salt and Pepper. And, you know, they came up and they, they I don't know, they, they're, they seem like really fierce, proud young women. And I kind of love that about them. And I think maybe, you know, we trusted each other in that way too. If it had been, I don't know if it would have been the same with a male photographer. 
And probably the same thing when I photographed uh, Roxanne Chante, that was during the Roxanne Wars and she, she was 14 years old. She was really just a kid. And the fact that she could come to my studio, she came with her manager at the time and you know, she had so much attitude and kind of just, she seemed to trust me. And I think maybe being a woman was helpful in those circumstances because there's, there's a trust there. And, you know, she felt like she could be who she was. I mean, I, I actually love that picture of Roxanne Chante standing. She's standing on Lafayette Street, actually right around the corner from where I live now. She's looking directly in the camera and she's giving you that look, look that, you know, really expresses everything that's in her song. And she wrote that when she was 14 years old. That's pretty wild. One of my favorite pictures from your um, book is with um, Sade when she was in front of the police car. What was it like working with her? Well, when I took that picture, I knew Sade because well, I'd moved to New York. That was 83. I was already here. And I knew her from London a little bit. And one of my friends was dating her brother. You know, it was kind of part of that whole London posse. So she was in a band called Pride. She wasn't even Sade yet. But uh, so we were doing a story for Melody Maker and, me and a writer. And I knew a little bit about the neighborhood and she was staying on Pitt Street, which is underneath the Williamsburg Bridge. And it's a very sketchy neighborhood. And there are a lot of abandoned cars and, you know, homeless people and whatever. And uh, so we were just kind of basically hanging out talking. And I, you know, we found this cop car and she's just posing against it. I love that picture so much. It's just such a moment in time. And I remember going to the concert that night. I can't remember what club it was in. It was one of those East Village clubs. And it was kind of a rowdy crowd. Like they didn't really know Pride. And they didn't really, you know, Pride was kind of like a soul-y kind of, British, British soul-y kind of band. And people were like shouting and whatever. And she just stopped. And she looked really beautiful. She's on stage in this beautiful black dress and she just stopped in the middle and just said, you're, you know, something like, you'll have to be quiet now or else I'm not going to continue. And they all stopped, <laughs> everybody. And then she started singing and then, you know, the rest of the concert was her, she owned it. And you realize then she had so much power. She's just like an incredible singer. She's really, you know, one of my all time favorites, that's for sure. You know, you really don't see too much about her anymore. Um, she's actually one of my, you know, top three interviews, like my top three dream interviews. So yeah. hopefully one day I'll get it. But yeah, but yeah. I think she's the sort of person that will put up an album, you know, every 10 years she'll pop up with some killer album. And you're like, wow, OK, she's back. And then she just disappears again. So, you know, a little, you know, Nana Cherry is a little bit like that, too. Shout out to Nana, one of my favorites, but yeah. You know, Run DMC is another iconic group that you work with, you know, and there's a famous photo in your book where like all the members and their crew, you know, they're in Queens posted up in front of a house. Like, what do you remember about that day? 
Oh, wow. That actually is maybe one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken, to be honest. I was working for that magazine I'd mentioned called The Face, and they had told me there's this new group, Run DMC, and we're talking 1984. So it was before they really broke out. Um, and uh, they just gave me a phone number, call this phone number and, you know, go take a picture of them. So I get, you know, I get on the phone and it turns out to be Jam Master Jay's mom's house. And, you know, I talked to Jay and he's like, okay, so, you know, come, come meet me by the, the train station. And, you know, in a couple of days. So I get on the train and I have a Hasselblad camera. It's a big camera um, on the train. I don't really know where Hollis Queens is. I, don't, I thought it was kind of going to be more like the Bronx. I had no idea. Anyway, I get off the train and there's Jay waiting for me. And he's like, okay, we'll just take a little walk down the street. Walking down the street and it's like this really nice tree-lined neighborhood, you know. And we turn the corner and there's Run DMC waiting with a bunch of their friends and they're standing by a car and it's like dappled sunlight, you know, it's probably like a spring day or something. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just so great. And I already had the film loaded in my camera. So I was just like, just stand a little closer. And I just, I started to take pictures and I love that picture. It's very natural and it, it's such a moment in time. I mean, it, you, couldn't, you couldn't make a photo like that. I mean, as far as, it's just a very pure photo. And I knew, I took this photo maybe in the first four or five frames that I shot. And I had a feeling when I took it, it was almost like a physical feeling. Like, you know, you say, you know, the hair stands up on the back of your neck type thing that you get like a mm -hmm. this is this is going to be a good photo and it just captures everything to me about them at that particular moment and the way their style the adidas the gazelles and the kangles and they're very natural and relaxed and it's just a, to me it's just a perfect photo and i think that's the street that they lived on so there's a lot there's a lot in that photo. You know, another famous guy that you worked with was um, Dapper Dan. Like, do you think if it wasn't for his fashion that some of the iconic photos of the day wouldn't hit as hard as they did? Oh, totally. I mean, the thing is, I didn't know Dapper Dan back in the day and I didn't really know about him. But, you know, in recent mm -hmm. history, I. I got to photograph him and do a story about him. And I also got to photograph him with his first collection collaboration with Gucci for Interview Magazine. And I think Dapper Dan, you know, he really clothed most everybody back in the day. And I didn't know at the time that those jackets that Salt and Pepper were wearing, I call them the April jackets, were actually made by him. I'm looking through that book. There's a lot of Dapper Dan in that book. He just, he was the man. And talk about creative. 
you know, people wanted to wear designer clothing, they couldn't afford it. He printed his own fabric. He set up shop in Harlem. He had a 24 hour shop with tailors custom making. You know, you wanted the interior of your car done in Dapper Dan fabric, you could have it, you could get a jacket, you could get whatever you wanted. I mean, he clothed hip hop's royalty. And he's, you know, he's still doing it today. I mean, his story is an amazing story. So yeah, I'm happy to, you know, call him a friend right now. You know, some of my favorite photos that you took were with Public Enemy, you know, just their whole aura, their presence, the Nation of Islam um, presence. And to me, you know, Chuck D, he was another version of um, of Malcolm X at the time. Like, like, what was it like working with them? I mean, I was a, a huge public enemy fan, you know, and what, you know, I mentioned this, you know, talk about being woke. <laughs> Chuck mm -hmm. D to me is one of the most thoughtful, smart, you know, political voices of our generation. And that's, you know, I just have to say that. But at that time, I think uh, Do the Right Thing, you know, the Spike Lee movie was just out and it was a hot summer and, you know, their album had just dropped. And so I was photographing them for Melody Maker. And people, some people said to me, oh, you know, this could be a difficult shoot, you know, they're very political, you know, they might not like you, you know, blah, blah. I didn't really think much of that. They came around my studio and Chuck was just this incredible, thoughtful man, so smart. And you could just, you could just feel, you know, we were just talking about politics and whatever, and we were obviously on the same page. And then, you know, of course, Blade is there and he's playing the clown a little bit. And it was it was a great portrait shoot. And, you know, uh, Shepard Ferry did a piece on that recent, well, and I guess maybe about four years ago or something, Shepard Ferry reinterpreted that Chuck piece. And he brought me to LA to his gallery to, uh, for an opening because he was showing Chuck D's paintings. I don't know if you know, but Chuck D is also a painter. He does watercolors and they're so beautiful and powerful. I ended up, of course, buying oh. one, but it was great. So, you know, Chuck and Shepard and I all signed this piece. So it's really cool. And uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of, I don't know. I still think Public Enemy today is maybe, you know, one of the best best hip hop groups of all time, that's for sure. And the one thing I wanted to say about Run DMC, by the way, is mm -hmm. um, it's kind of segueing to, to the present day. I actually have this show at a, um, a gallery. It's a photo museum called Photographiska. It's on Park Avenue and 22nd Street. And I have the top floor there of uh, some of my photos from the book. And the book is kind of streaming on this giant screen. And uh, the artist, Say Adams, who was the creative director back in the day for Def Jam, he did this nine foot by 10 foot mashup. He's done art on top of uh, a picture I took of Run DMC. So it's really cool. It's still, it's still going on today. It's, it's kind of great. It's a beautiful piece. I'll send you a picture of it. 
Yeah, man. I want to see that. Um, yeah. That piece. So, like, you were on the forefront, you know, of uh, the golden era in rap in New York and the gangster rap period in L.A. Like, which era, like, do you think had the biggest impact? Of those two? Out of those two? Right. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, I would say the golden era of New York, for sure. But then, you know, right around 1991, 92, I kind of stopped doing so much hip hop and started photographing, you know, politicians and sports people and other people. And so my era really is that you know, 1982 to 1992. And since I was living in New York. I mean, I feel like that was the start of it all, but obviously bands, you know, Ice Cube and NWA are incredibly important and I, you know, but to me, a little later. So to me, you know, the groundbreakers are still, you know, folk from New York, basically, you know, like Flash, Public Enemy, and, you know, Run DMC, uh, Run DMC, of course, Slick Rick, Salt and Pepper, MC Light, you know, and Tribe, all of those folk, Gangstar, EPMD. I was just so lucky to be on, on the spot here. You get photographs, Paris One, of course. It's funny, you know, I don't know if you went, but <clears throat> New York City had uh, in the summer done this series of free concerts, hip hop concerts. Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I went to the one in Bronx. The Slick Rick and KRS were headlining, and it was just amazing. It was so incredible. And I have to tell you. So it was a free concert, outdoor concert in a parking lot. I mean, during the pandemic, it was a pretty incredible thing to pull off. And I was photographing it for actually a magazine out of Indiana called Patton, crazily enough. And so I was running around taking photos and someone was filming me for this movie that's coming out called Contact High. But um, we heard that Slick Rick had pulled into the parking lot. You know, was, we were like so excited to go running into the parking lot. This is just a little story. And there's this big SUV. I like is that Slick Rick's SUV? Is he, is he in it? I don't know if it's him. And the window goes down and there's Slick Rick and he's waving at me and I'm like, oh my God. And I, he gets out and he had that big, huge Africa chain. You know the one I'm, you know what I'm talking about? He's got this massive chain with a pendant of Africa. He gets out and he takes it off his neck, puts it around my neck, and then he's posing in front of me and everybody's taking pictures. It was just so wild that he gets on stage, he's the headliner, and he looks incredible. He's just, he's wearing turquoise, turquoise sneakers, turquoise shirt, turquoise shorts, he's got an eye patch, and he just, blew the audience away. Everybody knew every word to those songs and people were singing along. It was just such a magical moment. And when you think about it, I took that picture of Slick Rick that's on the cover of my book, I think 87, and he's still killing it today. How many years later is that? Just, I gotta give props to. Have you ever worked with Tupac, Big, or Wu-Tang? Although I did take a picture of the RZA for, um, 
I think in the 90s sometime for a hip hop, British hip hop magazine. He was great to work with, really great. And uh, he just came around my house, my studio, took a picture of him and we were then walked around the corner to this little alley, which I was very fond of taking pictures of. Sadly, now it's blocked off and I can't use it anymore, but it's a kind of graffiti covered alley, like right around the corner from my house. We took pictures there too, great. and. I'm sort of a latecomer to the Wu-Tang Clan. I actually saw them play in Dubai in uh, 2018 or 19. I can't quite remember which, but they were amazing. They were amazing. You know, you've been behind the lens for over 40 years. You know, what's left for you to accomplish as a photographer? Oh boy. Well, I think there's a lot left for me to accomplish. I mean, people get, asking me, are you going to retire? I actually, you know, photography is my passion in life. That's what keeps me going. And I'm excited to shoot things. You know, when Trump was in power, I did this project called I Vote Because, and we went to swing states and did portraits of people, you know, setting up in bus stations and, you know, parking lots to get out the vote, registering people to vote. That was like a passion project. You know, it's not something you get paid for. There's so much left for me to accomplish. I, you know, I would love to work for a brand, you know, like Adidas or Nike or Converse or you know, do portraits of people, real people that wear their sneakers, you know, that would be an exciting thing for me. I've always wanted to do that. And, you know, this women in rock thing is very exciting. I'm hoping to photograph some more of my idols. I think uh, Mavis Staples is coming up. So that's really exciting. There's a lot, you know, every day is something to photograph. So I'm always out there with my camera. And if I don't have my camera, just say I've got my iPhone. It's so sophisticated now. You can still take a great photo. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually, some of my protest pictures are in the Holocaust Museum in Houston, Texas right now. They're doing an anti-hate speech project. And, you know, that's really exciting. Things that I just took last year are now in a museum. But there's a lot to do and I want to do more exhibitions. I have an exhibition actually in the spring in LA at my gallery, which is called the Fahey Klein Gallery. I think it's going to be April or May. And it's, it's going to be an exhibition based around the book. So that's going to be really exciting. And you know, I just want to keep shooting, to be honest, keep taking pictures. You know, I'm not sure if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a contributors section to it, like the Basketball Hall of Fame does. But um, I really feel that you should be in it because of your because of your contributions, you know, to so many careers over the last, you know, 40 plus years. Jamal, I really appreciate you. Have a word in their ear. Actually, I am talking to somebody at, uh, yeah, I think I, I think it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I think also, um, what's it called? The one in Seattle. I think it changed its name. It's the, I don't know, Museum of Pop or whatever it's called. But, you know, I just, and the other thing that's exciting, Jamel, is that, you know, I have photographs in the Smithsonian African American history, <laughs> such a long word, <laughs> you know, 
the Smithsonian African American Museum in DC. So some of my hip hop photos are in there. I mean, that's incredible to me. You know, I actually, the National Portrait Gallery in London just acquired four of my punk pictures. That's all this stuff is really exciting and it's coming, you know, I had to wait a while, but it's coming. And that's very exciting, very exciting. And also, I'm sure you saw the, um, the Smithsonian hip hop book, right? Or have you? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of photos in that book and that's just such an honor for me and it's such a beautifully designed book. Uh, you know, so I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing and, you know, hopefully photograph more musicians and artists and rebels and creatives and skateboarders and basketball players, uh, all of that stuff. And, you know, I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. You know, I want to thank you for joining me today. You know, I really enjoyed this conversation, you know, with a legend like yourself. Um, do you have any, like upcoming projects that you want to plug or anything? Um, I guess, you know, just, you know, if people are interested, go out and buy Rebels from Punk to Dior and take a look at my 40 years, you know, being a photographer and documenting people who, you know, are doing things their own way, walking their own walk. And, uh, like I say, the next show will be in LA in the spring and anyone on the west coast go check it out we'd love to meet you and uh yeah i guess the women in rock thing is going to be great when that comes out I, i'm not sure when it's going to air to be honest but we're still shooting it and covid is putting a little bit of a spanner in the works as far as uh, scheduling but that's i think yeah you know <laughs> i I, you know, I want to continue and also I want to continue, you know, inspiring young people to take photos and follow their passions too. And, you know, maybe do more workshops and all of that stuff to, you know, mm -hmm. have people make their own art, which I think is really an important thing, especially now when people have been on lockdown and I think art is a really good way to combat all those things. All right. Right. Thank you again for your time. All right. And, and yeah. Thank you. See you soon.